welcome to church. Yeah, some of you, some of you are half clapping and you have reason. What an intro video. Well, I do want to encourage you to uh, fasten your seatbelts uh, because we're about to uh, start into a series that's going to, uh, could, could stir things up a little bit. And I'm kind of guy, I like to stir things up every now and then, but uh, we're going to keep it to the Bible. Everything's coming from the Bible. But I want to confess today, this is a verse and a, a group of verses or a couple of chapters I've never, never taught on before in 26 years. This will be the very first time. And that's hard to say when you've been doing it long as I have. Uh, if you're a guest here today, I want to welcome you. It's great to have you. And uh, we're, we're very excited you're here, and we hope that uh, we can help you in, in your relationship with God. And uh, as, as you see, the, uh, the title of our series is Right in the Eye. So you, you can go ahead and start thinking, what, what's this all about? And it'll be clear at the end. If, if you want to, you know, maybe halfway through the message, you'll say, man, I wish so-and-so were here, and he needs to hear this message. Well, you can go to our website, and you can have him watch it, listen to it, sign him up. You can email the podcast to them, the connection, and they, they can watch it. So if any of you missed, and, and even the previous series that uh, we've had, you can go back and listen to that at our website, uh, www.lighthousecoc.com. Okay, so let's get in. Today we're going to talk about right in the eye, and the title of today's lesson is called Stranger Than Fiction. And we are going to look at one of the most outrageous stories in maybe ancient history, and for sure in the Bible. Uh, and so prepare yourself. It's a little long, and I'm going to try to tell it as best I can. We're going to cover three chapters today. It's a lot. And, and our series, our four-part series that we're doing, Right in the Eye, is coming from the book of Judges. And the book of Judges was at a time period in Israel's history that you have, you know, Moses, and he brought the Ten Commandments out, led them out of Egypt, and then he passed the baton to, to to Joshua, and then Joshua led the people into the promised land. And then after they got in the promised land, Joshua died, and he left Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, in charge for this period of time. And you see the dates here, 1380 B.C., and then this period of time called Judges was when the 12 tribes of Israel were occupying the promised land. And what they call the Judges is because they had, Israel had no king. They were basically a commonwealth of the 12 tribes. They had the same customs, same language, same belief system, same law. And so it was during this, this period of time that we're going to be looking at during our series, Right in the Eye. And it was right before the monarchy of David and when he became king. And so this describes kind of like what happens in, in, in the nation of Israel. They had a pattern during this time of Judges. They basically would, would be disobedient, then there would be a disaster, and then there would be a deliverance. So for 330 years, it was this cycle, okay? Disaster, deliver. Disaster, disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Sound familiar? Yeah, a lot of us can relate. Uh, you know, but you think about it. God always came through because he gave them a law. And, and Israel at this time, they had judges, but they had no king. And during this time, they did really bad. They abandoned God's law. And he was supposed to be their king. That's why they didn't need a king, because God was their king. 
But they abandoned God and they abandoned the law. And so what would happen? They would be disobedient, then there would be disaster, and then they would cry out, God, please save us. And every time he would send a deliverer, and many times the deliverers were judges. And there were men that would uphold God's law and bring them back from disaster. And they would always say, like you and I say, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that again. I'll never, never, ever, ever do that again. And then they went back and did it again. And that was kind of the, the, the pattern that Israel was living at this time. And so the book of Judges, it kind of describes what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the very end of the book of Judges. And as I told you in the beginning, it's the most outrageous story in the Bible. Uh, you're going to read it and you're going to go, wow. But basically, it's a description of what happens when you do this. I'm going to do what I want. To, I'm, going to do, I'm going to do what I want because I think it's right for me. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what's right for me. You do what's right for you. Don't tell me what to do. And that basically was the trend. Sound familiar? I know what's best for me morally, even spiritually. I got this. Don't mess with me. Don't bother me. Okay, because I know what's best for me. And that was what was happening in Israel at this time. They had no king. And the very end of the book of Judges describes the very bottom of Israel's history. I mean, they reached an all-time low. And it's a sad, sad story, but it, it's, it really describes what happens to a group of people or a community or even a nation when they have this attitude is, I'm going to do what I want to do because I think it's right. You got what you think is right. I got what I think is right. So don't mess with me. So we're going to look at this story, okay, and it begins in Joshua, I mean, in uh, Judges chapter 19, if you want to follow along. But we're going to go pretty quick. I'm going to do my best to tell the story. It's three chapters. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit. And then we're going to look at some verses. But I'd encourage you to go back and read it yourself. Okay? Because it's an incredible story. It, it'll, it'll knock you off your chair. In fact, I've got a chair here because I need to sit, sit down during some of this. Okay, you ready? So there was a Levite, beginning in the chapter 19, verse 1, there was a Levite, and Levite was one of the tribes of Israel. They were Aaron's descendants. And this guy, he lives in the nation or area, because there were, there were tribes, but they were basically areas of Ephraim. And so he lives here, there's a Levite, and basically he goes and gets himself a concubine. Concubine was an interesting word because it meant this. Girlfriend slash wife slash servant slash fill in the blank. And it was something that they, they borrowed from the Canaanites. It wasn't even something that God established. It's something that they borrowed from the Canaanites. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, you know, how that whole thing happened. But this concubine, he goes to Bethlehem to get this woman. That's how they look at it, my woman. And so he goes down there to get her and brings her back to Ephraim, where he lived. Now, what happens a couple months after he gets his concubine, she's unfaithful to him. And it's kind of an arrangement. It, there's, there's, a, there's some, 
you know, some formality to it. He's not, she's not supposed to do that. She's unfaithful to him, and he finds out. And then she finds out that he finds out, and she takes off and runs away. And she goes back to her home in Bethlehem, to her father. So after a few months, the Levite sits down and says, I'm pretty lonely. I need to go get my woman. And so he travels down through Benjamin, down to Judea, and he goes to Bethlehem. And then when he arrives in Bethlehem, he reaches the, the, the city and goes to his woman's, his concubine's house, and there his, her father, his, I don't know if you can call it a father-in-law, but it was the dad of his concubine. The Bible says it's a, it's a father-in-law. Jumps back and forth. And so the father-in-law is happy to see him, you know, says, hey, it's great to see you. And then he goes and talks to his concubine and talks nicely to her and convinces her to come back with him, that he's not going to, you know, pay her back for the unfaithfulness. And so they're ready to leave the next day. And the father-in-law, he says, hey, just stay here for one more day. I got this spread of food. We'll eat. We'll enjoy our co in company. Let's eat and let's do this. And so they, they spent the whole day, the next day, eating and drinking quite a bit. And basically, that's what they did. And so the next day, he gets up and he wants to leave. And the father-in-law says, no, 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 don't leave. I got another meal and some great drinks. And so basically, they do the whole thing over again the very next day. This goes on for five days, over and over, the eating, the drinking. And on the fifth day, the Levite says, listen, I appreciate all the partying and everything else, but I got to go. We got to go. So on the fifth day, he packs up. He's got two donkeys, one male servant, and his concubine. And because they had another meal, just one more meal and a lot to drink, they left late in the day. And they weren't, they weren't able to make it very far out of Bethlehem. And so they're going down, and they could only make it to the area of Benjamin, and it's this city called Gibeah. And because it was a, one of the tribes of Israel, it was a fellow Israelite. So they go to this town. It's late in the day. And what you're typically supposed to do as an Israelite is you can go. They didn't have hotels or restaurants in those days. So what you would do, it was actually a law of hospitality. You'd go to the town center, and usually there was a well there. And you would sit there at the town center with, you know, your concubine and your servant and your donkeys, and you would wait until someone would come out to the well, and they were supposed to welcome you into their home. They're supposed to invite you and be hospitable and say, come. And it was a teaching from the Old Testament, Exodus 22, where God said, hey, be, be kind to strangers because you were once a stranger in Egypt. So it was a teaching, it was a law of Israel that you had to take care of, especially if you were another Israelite. And so the whole evening goes by, and no one talks to the Levite, his concubine, and the male servant. They almost ignore them. And it's weird. And so then an old man, it's already dark, an old man comes in from the fields working and greets them and says, you know, who are you and where are you from? And the old man talks to them, and, and, and the Levite replies, hey, I'm, I'm coming from Bethlehem, and I'm going to Ephraim. That's where I'm from. And I'm just here to stay. Can we stay with you and will you provide hospitality for us? And he says, of course. And so he takes them in to his house. Feeds the donkeys, washes their feet, gives them a nice meal. It's cool about this story is they have a lot of nice meals. And they, and they also drank as well. And they had a really great time and they're kicking back. Now here's where the story gets really, really 
weird. The Bible tells us late in the evening, after they've eaten and drink, a group of men show up. While they were still enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the old man's house. And then it gets even darker. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came, with, came to your house so we can have... Now this story reminds you of what? Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and this is crazy that this is going on in Israel, in God's people. And so they're huddled up in the house, and it wasn't so much a, a, an issue of, of pleasure, but it was to humiliate the man. That's why they did it. It's a custom that they got from the Canaanites, and it was passed on to Greeks and Romans. Men used to do this to men because they wanted to humiliate them. And it was a way maybe to speak and say, listen, we don't want strangers here, and if any stranger comes to our town, we will humiliate them so that the word gets out, we don't want strangers in our town. So the man goes out, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. I mean, this was an outrage that this is going on in Israel. Look, and this is, gets even weirder. The, man, the old man in the house says, look, here's my virgin daughter and this concubine, and I will bring them out to you and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them and they, I can't even finish the rest. What they did to his concubine was horrific. It was horrible, horrible, horrible. And so the next morning, the, the Levite gets ready to go. And when he opens the door to the old man's house, there she is laying on the ground with her hands on the threshold. And he tries to wake her up but her body is lifeless. So he picks her up, puts her on, her on his donkey, gets his male servant, the other donkey, and they go home to Ephraim. When he arrives in Ephraim, he's furious. He's so angry. And so he decides to write a letter to the 12 tribes of Israel, letting Israel know what has happened in Gibeah. That, that, that not only was his concubine murdered in a horrific manner, the laws of hospitality were violated. And not only that, his own life was threatened. And such a thing should never happen. So he puts it down in a letter and he says, you know what, what's a letter going to do? And then he does the unthinkable. He chops his concubine's body 
into 12 parts. He wraps the parts up, maybe a leg, maybe a foot, maybe a hand, maybe a head. And he wraps up these body parts and sends a body part with a letter to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so a few few days later, it arrived to the mayor or the leader of the tribe, and, and someone shows up and says, hey, the mail's arrived, you have a letter and also a package. And so as these men open the package, you can imagine the horror. And they read the letter, and there is outrage in all of Israel. And so they come together, And they meet, and they said, everyone who saw this was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the days the Israelites came out of Egypt. It's unimaginable that this is going on in our people. We haven't even heard of such a thing. How could this be happening? We have reached an all-time low as a people, and we have to do something. And so they call a meeting, and they decide to assemble armed forces. And they assemble 400,000 fighting men to go to the city of Gibeah and, and call for the wicked men to come out so they can be killed, each one, one by one. So they move the troops towards Gibeah. And Benjamin, at this time, it's a nation, it's a, it's a tribe. They got a letter also, and so they know they're coming. And so when they, they asked them, they said, send the wicked men out. They assembled their own forces and said, no, we take care of our own. We will not give you these men. And we are going to take care of them by our own ways. And so now we are on the verge of a civil war. And they decide to go to war and attack. Israel attacks its own brother tribe. The very next day, 400,000 soldiers. And Benjamin was able to put together 27,000 soldiers. And they were very experienced fighting men. So they come out of Gibeah, and it's right outside of Gibeah where this war takes place, where this battle takes place. And on the first day, Benjamin takes out 22,000 Israelite soldiers. And then the, the Israel, they, they reassemble, they encourage each other, and they come back the next day, similar result. 18,000 Israelite soldiers are killed. So they pull back, and they make a plan for the third day. And on the third day, they make a different plan. And what they decide is to lure out the Benjamite army and pull them out of the city, and then they'll have 10,000 soldiers go in, experienced soldiers, and basically kill everyone in Gibeah and burn the city to the ground. And when the other Israelites see the plume of smoke rising from Gibeah, they will know that the attack was successful, and then they can just pummel the rest of the soldiers. And so that's what they did. When the Benjaminites saw the smoke coming from their city, they were terrified. And there was a great slaughter that day, 26,000 Benjamite fighting men were slaughtered that day. And the bloodlust is just flowing for the rest of the Israelite soldiers. 
It's no longer they're not seeing straight. It's a fury. And so they go through the whole tribe, the whole land of Benjamin, and they wipe out every town and city and village and kill everyone and everything and burn those towns and villages to the ground for three weeks. And when they settle down from their bloodlust, they're conscience-stricken. And they realize, what have we done? This is no longer about, you know, a, a, a battle. Th- this, is, this has now become genocide. This is no longer about justice. And so they're incensed and they're, they're, they can't believe it. They, they, they go before the Lord and they, they're, they're weeping. We've, we've taken out, we've killed one of our own brother tribes and there's no one left. And they can't believe it's happened. They can't believe what they've done. And then someone in the back raises their hand and says, not everyone was killed. There were 600 Benjamite soldiers, 600 men that escaped the battle that day and they ran to the desert and they're hiding in the desert. So they send out a a delegation for peace and they call these 600 men out and they they swear that they're not gonna hurt them. But they realize earlier that they made an oath that they were never going to let any of their young women marry a Benjamite. And so you've got these 600 men with no women and no one can marry them. Someone in the back again raises their hand and makes a suggestion. Has everyone showed up for the battle? As everyone showed up that because they called everyone, called all the armed forces and they said everyone must come and rally together. And they said there was one city, Jebesh Gilead was not represented that day. And anyone who did not participate in the campaign was to be put to death. And so a decision was made to go to this city of Jebesh and Gilead and attack it and wipe it out and only allow young unmarried women to survive. And they go and they do it. Problem is there's only 400 young unmarried women. We've got 600 men, 400 women. And so they have a wife lottery. But there's 200 men without a wife. And so another guy raises his hand and he says, I know and I have an idea There's a festival in Shiloh, one of the towns. And during this festival, the young unmarried women run out into the vineyards and they dance in the vineyards. And what these 200 men can do, they can go into hiding around the vineyard and when these young women come out dancing in the vineyard, these young, these Benjamites, the 200, can go and grab themselves a wife and steal themselves a wife and they can run away with a wife and we'll take care of all of them. I told you it was outrageous. So this is what they do. And then we'll tell the fathers and the brothers of these young women that it's okay. You didn't give your wife to a Benjamite to marry. They were stolen. And you can't do anything about it because we're a lot more than you, and you just have to take it because we're trying to save one of our tribes. So here we have 600 men and 600 stolen women, and they're supposed to go back to their villages that are burnt to the ground and procreate and start all over again. And this is the end of the book of Judges. 
No heroes, no good news. Just a sick feeling in your stomach. And you ask yourself, how, how is it possible that this happened? And here's the answer. The very last verse of the book of Judges. Look what it says. The very last verse. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. In other words, they had no God. They had no moral system. They had no judgment. And it gets worse. It says, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. I do what I think is right. You do what you think is right. And if you look at this, you can go back and you can see every event that happened in chapter 19, 20, and 21, every event, every situation, you can go back and say, all these people felt justified in their own eyes. It began with the Benjamites. They don't like strangers. And if a stranger comes to town, we're going to get rid of him and we're going to humiliate him and he will never come back and word will get out and no one will come and visit our towns. They'll leave us alone. They thought that was right in their own eyes. The Levite thought it was right in his own eyes to go ahead and push his concubine out to those men. And probably reasoned in his own mind that if she had been, unfa if she had been faithful in the beginning, none of this would have happened. And then the Israelites... They reason in their own mind, we had every right to bring about justice for such an unthinkable thing. And we should have done what we've done. And here's the, you say, why are you telling this story at church? Because this, there's a little bit of this in every one of us. And every one of us. I do what I think is right. You do what you think is right. And the real question is, do you have a king? And, and basically, you sum it up this way. This is another way to paraphrase it. In those days, there was no binding moral consensus. So people followed their own moral compass. Sound familiar? United States of America, 2014. February 16th. 11 or 10.50 a.m. This is us, guys. This is our nation. And the weird thing is, is with this whole idea, we think that it's okay to say, I'll do what I want. And you do what you want. Don't bother me. Don't mess with me. I, I'm, I'm my own judge. I'm my own leader. And here's the American, here's the crazy thing. Here's the underlying American dream that we have the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. It's, in, it's all in, our, in, our, in the commercials. They, 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 just, they just prick you with it and they say, hey, you can do what you want, when you want, with who you want. You're free. It's America. And here's, here's one of the clauses. It says, 
I can do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Hmm. Really? Now, this is a motto for a lot of people. This may have been your motto. It was definitely my motto. I used to go to church once in a while in my previous life. And I believe this. As a young college student, I can do what I want to do. I'm 18 now. No, at that time, it was, I'm 20. Okay? I can do what I want, when I want, with who I want. And as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But the truth of the matter is, this permeates our culture. It's in our music. Every, almost every commercial is just kind of little, you can do this. You, you, you have the freedom to choose. And where it affects you the most is debt, abuse of substances, alcohol, and drugs. We go way off the deep end, and we, we ruin our lives all in the name of freedom to do what we want, when we want, with who we want. Step back and look at it. What does this create? Utter chaos. What does Judges 19, 20, and 21 tell us? When there's no king and there's no moral compass, there's no, there's no decision we're going to follow, a plan, a law, there's utter chaos. And, and the reality is, you know, who can, who can really do this? Only the super rich can afford to do this idea of I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. Because eventually you're going to have to lawyer up. That's what, that's what the super rich always do. And you, if you can afford, you know, a team of lawyers, then fine. You can do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want. And we see it in the media all the time. Celebrities. This is what they do. This is how they live. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone. But only the super rich can afford to do this. But the reality is, when you think about this, this motto generally works out better for men than it does for women. See, when men live by this motto, I can do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, guess who suffers? Women, you can go back in history. All throughout history, you can track it. In history, women become, they're no longer individuals, they become possessions, and they become a center for profit. And they lose all their rights because of this motto when men do this. And you know who suffer the most after? Children. Children. So today, you've got to ask yourself the question. You can do what's right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone? Can you do that? Eventually, you're going to hurt you. Right? You know this. You've lived it. You, we all know this. We're all in this category where we understand you can't live this way because you'll eventually hurt yourself. But as you hurt yourself, don't you think you're going to hurt people around you? What parent who has that motto of I'll do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, doesn't affect his children and his wife or her husband 
And if you're a parent and your children live this way, doesn't it hurt you deeply? Absolutely, it torments parents. So this idea that you can do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, is a myth. Absolute myth. And it's time that we look it straight in the eye and face it. Am I living by this motto? Interesting thing is, if you go back and read Judges 19, 20, and 21, they're, they're sprinkled with prayer. There's prayer involved. They, they did pray sometimes, but the reality of it is they had no moral compass. And God was not their king. He was a crutch. And they used him on occasion. And he helped them on occasion. It was a fake religiosity. God was not their king. They were doing what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, and with whomever they wanted to do it. Now let me ask you a question today. Are you without a king? And are you doing what you think is right in your own eyes? And what will be the consequence of it? I mean, th- th- this morning it was, it was so awesome, wasn't it, to have those young men up here, those Cub Scout, Boy Scouts, and the investment. That's going in one direction. Our society as a whole is going in a completely different direction. Parents are living by this motto, and they're teaching their children to live by this motto. Our, our, our media is teaching us to live by this motto. You guys buy the songs. Teens, you guys buy the songs that teach you this. I can do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want. And we dig it. We believe in it. But this isn't reality. Here's the thing. Eventually you're going to hurt somebody and the you is you. And not only that, you're going to hurt the people coming after you. And that's what we don't realize as a nation. Even as a church, do you realize what you're doing right now by not having God as your king and not following his, his law and just being kind of religious? Do you not realize you're going to pass that on That's right. to your children? Yeah. I mean, this is real, guys. I mean, look at the news. We don't have to go that far. You go, oh, that's an outrage. I can't even believe we're reading, you know, Judges 19, 20, and 21. The, the, you know, the, the, this is crazy. Do you realize that last week on the 60 freeway at 4 a.m., a young woman said, I will do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, and she killed six people, including her sister. It happens every day. It'll be, when you get home, there'll be something on the news about that today. He said, I'm glad it's not me. Really? Before you say it's not you, we all, and I include myself, we all need to do a thorough evaluation. Do we have a king? And are we following his law? Now, the, the amazing thing about this is, you know, we think, and why, why can't we say this? I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it helps somebody. Why can't we say that? 
Why would we lower ourselves to the, the bottom, the gutter, and be the, the, the cesspool of society and say, I do what I want when I want, and I don't care about how it affects everybody else. Why can't we turn it around and say, hey, I want to do it. I want to do this if it helps somebody. If it doesn't help somebody, then I won't do it. If it doesn't edify, create, build, make better, then I won't do it. I don't care if I want to. I don't care if it feels good at the time. I'm going to use my brain. And so I'm going to close out with this. We're going to wrap it up. And there's a little bit of tension. That's why you got to come back next week because as we take each step, you're going to get a little bit more that there's hope. Number one is I, I, want, to, I want to encourage you to identify the American dream in your own mentality and in your own life. The American dream mentality in your own life. Where, where does it pop its head in your own life? You know, maybe, maybe you've got some habits. And here, here's, the, here's the truth. Some of us are a little weird. Okay, we're, we're a little odd. We, we, we don't get along with people very well. And here's the thing. The older you get, the older you get, you connect the dots. And you go back and you realize, how did I get this way? Because you had a parent who basically said, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want. And they left. And every year of your life, it affects you. It hurts you. It's why you are the way you are. I mean, it's a serious deal we're talking about. So I want to encourage you, it can stop with you. It, it can change with you. If you'll simply just wave your hand and say, my life is a disaster or it's been a disaster. I may not be in the middle of it right now, but I'm headed for it and I need a king and I need him to teach me how to live. Number two is be honest with yourself. Who is king and what law are you following? Here it is. This, this is I, I cannot find a, a self-help book, uh, any kind of a class or workshop or, you know, a motivational speaker that comes anywhere close to the Word of God in building family, life, and offering even better salvation. Can't find it. Haven't been able to find it. For thousands of years, it always comes back to God's Word. Yep, he knew what he was talking about. Yep. And some of you, some of you got your own testimony. Yep, yep, I should have I followed God's word. It would have been a whole different story if I had. But that can change starting today. Amen. Starting today. And then the last thing is remember who God is. And this is where we're going to stop and take communion is God's not this authoritative power trip father. He cares about us. He loves us. He's a and I will follow his word because he knows better than I do. And since I started doing that, the disasters have been few and far between. I'm not perfect. It's been a few stumbling, you know. 
But I always learn, God, I need more of you in my life. And I need to be humble. So I want to encourage you today as you take the communion to make a decision, to do an evaluation this week and decide, is God my king? And am I following his law? And, and I'm including our members today. I really want to encourage you because there's a lot of us that are doing our own thing, our own way, what we want, with a sprinkle of prayer and Bible study added on. Sounds nice. But you know, and some of our own people have headed for and had disasters happen right in our midst. And you go, how could that happen? Because they weren't doing it for real. It was spotty. It was here and there. God wasn't really king. So let's pray for the communion. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for preserving your word that teaches us how important it is to follow you and to follow your word and to have you as our king. Thank you that you're a loving father and that you care deeply about us. God, I pray that as we take the communion that we can recommit, we can redecide. I pray for our friends, our guests that are living here today, that they'll be honest with themselves, God, to be honest with you about what's going on in their lives and the effect that it's having on people around them. I pray that today you will help us to appreciate deeply what Jesus went through for us, that he bore in his body our guilt, our sins, and by his wounds, we're healed. And by his wounds, we know we're loved. Father, bless us and help us. And thank you for this communion that we can take to remember Jesus' body and blood. I pray, God, you'll forgive us all and give us a new start for our future and for our children and for our nation. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.